This podcast details true crime cases, contains adult themes, and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series, The Day the Music Died, where I share stories of the tragic endings of musical icons. Today's episode will recount the sad circumstances of two of rap's fastest rising stars who were cut down in their prime. They had respect and love for each other at first, but became bitter rivals and enemies due to the high stakes of the music business, their male egos, and the violent code of the streets. This is Chapter 3, Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls. The drama in Tupac Shakur's life began before he was even born. His mother was born Alice Faye Williams in 1947 in Lumberton, North Carolina. While her family was from Lumberton, she was only born there because her mother happened to be visiting family at the time. They had moved to Norfolk, Virginia previously. But Lumberton had long been where the family had its roots. Lumberton was a small town with mostly poor people. But the poorest of the poor were the blacks and the Native American residents. The Ku Klux Klan had a firm foothold in Lumberton. In 1958, tired of racism and oppression, the blacks and Native Americans banded together to fight the Klan, succeeding in driving the terrorists out of town. But segregation and poverty were still problems that made life difficult for the family. Adding to their hardships was the fact that Alice's father was a drunk who beat his wife. Alice's mother had finally had enough when Alice was 11 years old. She left her husband and moved herself and her children to New York City. They settled in the Bronx. Alice was a rebellious youth, and as a teen joined a girl gang and ran in the streets, drinking, vandalizing, and sometimes worse. She admits that they sometimes beat up strangers for fun. Alice was smart and a talented dancer. She even qualified to attend the high school for the performing arts, but without the funds required for dance shoes and other supplies she needed, she began cutting classes. Instead, she would hang out with a boyfriend and get high. When her best friend, who was a heroin user, died... Alice had a wake-up call. She then found solace and an anchor in studying the religion and culture of the Yoruba people of West Africa. She eventually changed her name to Afeni, which meant Dear One. In 1968, Bobby Seale, co-founder of the Black Panther Party, visited Harlem, and Afeni heard him speak. Afeni was inspired by the message of empowerment for black people through the use of forceful resistance. This was a concept Afeni understood well. After all, her ancestors had succeeded against the Klan through direct confrontation. She was sold on the Panthers' message. She joined the group and quickly moved into a leadership position, fundraising for the cause as well as starting a free breakfast program for children and giving speeches. Afeni began a relationship with another member by the name of Lumumba Abdul Shakur. He was already married and had two children, but Islamic law allowed him to have multiple wives and he married Afeni in 1968 when she was 21. In 1969, Afeni was arrested with 21 other members of the Black Panthers, including her husband. The media called them the New York 21. They were charged with conspiring to murder New York City police officers, bomb five New York department stores, six railroads, and the New York Botanical Gardens. Afeni was charged with 30 counts of conspiracy. While she was out on bail before the trial, she began seeing another panther named Billy Garland and became pregnant. Her husband had not raised Bill and was still incarcerated. He found out and divorced her on the grounds of adultery. She was thrown back into prison when several of her co-defendants jumped bail. 
At the trial, Afeni represented herself, and brilliantly. She was acquitted, the jury taking only two and a half hours to return a not guilty verdict. She gave birth to a baby boy one month after her release, on June 16, 1971. She named her son Lassan Parrish Crooks. Less than two years later, Afeni changed her son's name to Tupac Amaru Shakur. He was named after the last emperor of the Inca people. In 1780, Tupac Amaru II led the first major Inca uprising against the Spaniards in two centuries. Afeni wanted her son to be named after a symbol of resistance. When asked about his beginnings, Tupac is quoted as saying, I was cultivated in prison. My embryo was in prison. Tupac was raised from infancy around the ideals of resistance and black empowerment. When he was only two months old, his mother took him to a rally to hear Minister Louis Farrakhan speak. When he was a young boy, he was asked what he wanted to be. A revolutionary, he replied. Afeni was free, but as a high school dropout and an ex-Panther who was once accused of conspiring to bomb New York landmarks, she was often unemployed. Afeni and Tupac were often homeless, bouncing from friends' couches to homeless shelters and sometimes worse places. She was finally employed at a nonprofit and met and married Mutulu Shakur. He was no relation to her first husband. She and Mutulu had a daughter, Sekiwa. Tupac's stepfather became a fugitive from justice when Tupac was 10. A few of the leftover revolutionary fighters from organizations, including the Black Panthers, the Black Liberation Army, and the Weather Underground, began robbing banks and armored cars. They planned to use the proceeds to finance revolution. A Brinks truck robbery in 1981 turned deadly when two police officers and a security guard were killed. Matulu escaped the scene and went on the run. Afeni was soon fired from her nonprofit job, most likely due to the fact that she was the wife of one of the FBI's most wanted. She and her children were once again shuttled in between friends, family, and shelters. Tupac recalls that he moved 18 times from his birth to the age of 10. Tupac was a quiet child. He would often withdraw into himself and liked to write poetry. Because he was never in one place very long, he was unable to make lasting friends and learn to be alone. But without friends, he was often a target for bullies. He was made fun of for his strange-sounding name as well as his looks. Tupac was a beautiful child, with big brown eyes, long eyelashes, and high cheekbones. The tougher boys thought he looked effeminate and called him names. Tupac began learning how to reinvent himself to handle any situation he found himself in, whether it was as a smart, sensitive kid who was rewarded by teachers, or the tough street kid who could run with the boys and not be singled out or bullied. Afeni's next boyfriend was a local gangster called Legs. Tupac became attached to Legs and later in life would tell people that this was his real father. Unfortunately, Legs also introduced Afeni to crack cocaine, which was now prevalent in the area. One of Afeni's cousins felt sorry for young Tupac. He never fit in and seemed lost. He couldn't play sports or fight very well. She told her about free acting classes for children in Harlem. This is something Tupac could do. Pretend to be someone else. He stepped into roles in his life as needed, and now he was praised for his skills as an actor. He began acting at age 12 and was such a natural that he soon got a role in a children's production of A Raisin in the Sun. His first performance had the added prestige of being used as a fundraiser for Jesse Jackson, who was campaigning to become the Democratic nominee for president. It was held in the Apollo Theater in Harlem. Acting gave Tupac a purpose, and it also served as a place both he and his sister could go to get off the streets. It also provided food for the children who attended the classes and rehearsals. Legs was arrested and sent to jail for credit card fraud, 
and Afeni found herself unable to pay the rent again. She moved the children once again, this time to Baltimore to live with an aunt. Away from legs and the easy access to drugs, Afeni began to work to elevate her family's situation. She applied for welfare and began taking free computer classes to help her find a job. They lived in a very poor neighborhood in Baltimore. It was not too safe, but Tupac remembers being happy and feeling like a normal family for once. Legs was released from jail while they were in Baltimore, but he soon died from a crack-induced heart attack. Tupac was devastated. He cried that he missed his daddy. But having a more stable place to live, Tupac was able to make some friends and catch up in school. Friends he made in his new middle school remembers how poor he was. They recall his ill-fitting clothes that looked secondhand, but everyone recalls his smile. He had a wonderful grin that could light up a room and melt hearts. He would still be teased, but he didn't seem to mind. He continued to write poetry and role-play, easily imitating his favorite movie and television characters and making others laugh. In 1985, when he began high school, Tupac auditioned for the Baltimore School for the Arts and was accepted. He received free tuition and studied acting, poetry, jazz, and ballet. Many of the students were upper-income white kids. Tupac says before he attended BSA, he thought all white people were devils who hated blacks. He was surprised that he was accepted by his white classmates and became friends with many students. It was at BSA that he met Jada Pinkett, who would become a well-known actress and change her name to Jada Pinkett Smith after marrying rapper and actor Will Smith. She would become one of his best friends, and they would remain close all of his life. Tupac excelled in school. He performed in Shakespeare plays and the Nutcracker Ballet. He also began to perform in school talent competitions. Calling himself MC New York, he would rap using the poetry he had been writing most of his life. He was not the only rapper in the school, but he was considered the best. He was popular in the performing arts high school due to his talent, his sense of humor, and his easygoing nature. If any, he was still active in community organizations, although she often still battled drug addiction. Tupac also wrote and performed raps at some community rallies with the themes of staying away from drugs and avoiding teen pregnancy. Tupac's best friend in high school was a boy named John Cole. John was white and lived in a comfortable home with two parents. There was always sheets on the bed with food in the refrigerator, and Tupac spent many hours there. Eventually, John went to live with his brother in a nearby apartment, and Tupac went with him. Here he could just be a normal guy, hanging out with friends and having fun, without the burden of having to be the man of the house. In his junior year, Tupac, having just completed his college applications, was told by Afeni that she had been evicted, and they would be moving once again. Without his mother's permission, Tupac, still a minor, could not stay behind on his own. This time, Afeni was packing up and moving to the West Coast. She had some old friends from her Black Panther days that were willing to help her make a fresh start in California. This, in effect, ended Tupac's high school career and his hopes for college. They moved to Marin City, California in 1988 when Tupac was 17 years old. Just north of San Francisco, over the Golden Gate Bridge, Marin City in 1988 was a high-crime, high-poverty area. The section of the city that Tupac lived in was known as the jungle. Once again, they were living in the ghetto in a not-too-stable situation. Afeni still had trouble providing for her children and staying off drugs. Tupac began to hang out with the locals, mostly drug dealers, pimps, and criminals. He smoked weed, more than he had in Baltimore, 
fell behind in school, and soon dropped out altogether. He tried to sell drugs, but admits that he wasn't good at it. He'd sometimes get jumped by the gang kids and says he was considered a nerd by neighborhood standards. But Tupac was a skilled rapper, and this was valuable currency in the hood. People began to listen to him, and they thought he was good. About this time, Tupac met Layla Steinberg, who would be instrumental in getting Tupac discovered. Layla was a dancer who was married to Bruce Crawford, who was a well-known DJ in L.A.'s rap music scene before moving to Northern California. Layla was always active in the performing arts and reaching out to kids to provide them with a creative outlet. Layla was visiting high schools to promote her after-school program to kids in Marin City and Oakland and enroll them in writing and performing classes. She was told about a young rapper in the neighborhood named Tupac. She met Tupac and convinced him to audition for the program. After his audition, she was impressed and asked him to join her class. Tupac was hungry to perform again and soon threw himself into the program. He and Layla together created a program called Assemblies in Motion, where they brought talented young people to high schools to perform and hopefully inspire other teens to creative pursuits. Tupac also hungered for guidance and a stable family, and soon moved in with Layla and her family. Layla said Tupac loved to read and went through most of the books in her library. They would then discuss subjects he'd read about, including politics, philosophy, and literature. His raps began to evolve in maturity and subject matter, and he expanded his knowledge. Always good with words, Tupac now began to take his writing to another level. Tupac founded a rap group called Strictly Dope. Layla sent a video of Tupac performing with Simply Dope to Atron Gregory, a friend and the manager of Digital Underground, an up-and-coming rap group. Gregory was impressed. He urged Shock G. Jacobs, the front man for Digital Underground, to meet with Tupac. He was able to get an audition for him with the group. Shock G. thought he was good and offered him a job, first as a roadie. Tupac accepted and used this opportunity to show off his rap skills whenever he could. Tupac was also being managed by Gregory now. In 1990, Digital Underground's song The Humpty Dance was shooting up the charts and Tupac was given the opportunity to dance on stage during their performances. The song became a hit and Tupac toured with the group across the U.S. and in Japan. Digital Underground's second album, This Is An EP Release, I guess they couldn't think of a name, featured their next hit, Same Song. Tupac was given a solo on the song and appeared in the video. The song was featured in the movie Nothing But Trouble, a comedy starring Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, John Candy, and Demi Moore in 1991. Tupac was on his way to being a star. Tupac was a workaholic and a perfectionist. He sometimes would explode into anger at the group. He was repeatedly fired by Shock G, and then they'd make up and all would be well again. Shock G just chalked this up to Tupac being an intense guy. Tupac's mother was increasingly messed up on drugs, and he soon found out that she had abandoned his little sister, taking off on her and spending days away doing drugs. Tupac sent his sister back to New York to live with their aunt. Tupac then refused to speak or see his mom. Tupac and his mother would have a complicated relationship all his life. He loved his mother and often talked about the respect he had for her struggles, raising two children on her own in poverty. But those who knew him knew he'd been hurt by the poverty and the neglect he had experienced growing up. Tupac would later write a song for her titled Dear Mama that would celebrate her triumph over poverty and drug addiction. It would become one of his best-known and loved songs. Gregory tried to get Tupac a deal with Tommy Boy Records, Digital Underground's label, but they passed. 
He then passed the demo tape on to Ted Fields of Interscope Records. Fields said he didn't know much about rap, but gave it to his teenage daughter to listen to. When she said she loved the music and also loved Tupac's dreamy eyes, he decided he could probably sell his records and signed him. His first album was titled Tupacalypse Now. Tupac wanted to differentiate himself from the top-selling rap groups like N.W.A. and decided to focus on rap that had a conscience. This also fulfilled his need to fight for social change, especially to benefit poor kids in inner-city neighborhoods. His first single, Trapped, was released in 1991. It became an instant hit. In that same year, Tupac was stopped by police for jaywalking. Tupac thought the cops were going out of their way to be disrespectful and hassle him, and he cursed at them. The officers then threw him on the ground and began to choke him out. The scars he received would be visible on his face forever. He was arrested. Tupac saw the irony in the fact that he'd never been in trouble with the law before, even having grown up around crime and criminals all his life. But now that he was a successful recording artist, the first public perception of him would be as a lawbreaker. He went on TV talk shows and radio shows to tell his side of the story. Earlier that year, in March, the nation would watch another black man pulled over by the police in Los Angeles and receive a brutal beating that was recorded on video. Rodney King's attack by police was still fresh on the minds of many, especially black people, and Tupac's account rang true. The public was still on his side, or at least somewhere. On November 12th, Tupacalypse Now was released. The album covered topics such as poverty, violence, police brutality, and teen pregnancy. In 1992, Tupac got a part in the movie Juice. In it, he plays a character named Bishop, a street kid who becomes increasingly violent and out of control. His co-stars remember that Tupac would stay in character even in between takes. He strived for a perfect performance. He won praises in a New York Times review that hailed him as the film's most magnetic figure, and Rolling Stone said there is no denying his power as an actor. One scene became especially memorable. Crazy, man. You know what? When you said that last time, I was kind of tripping, right? But now, you right. I am crazy. But you know what else? I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck about you. I don't give a fuck about Steel. And I don't give a fuck about Raheem either. I don't give a fuck about myself. Look, I ain't shit. I ain't never gonna be shit. And you less of a man than me, so as soon as I decide that you ain't gonna be shit, pow. So be it. You remember that, motherfucker. Because I'm the one y'all need to be worried about. Partner. In three short years, Tupac Shakur had gone from a homeless teen to a platinum-selling recording artist and a Hollywood movie star. Afeni was now clean and sober, having completed rehab successfully. Tupac was providing financially for both his mother and his little sister. As the popularity of rap music was increasing, its fans were no longer just black inner-city youth, but white suburban kids who were also purchasing rap records in droves. Some critics declared rap music dangerous and a threat to society. A defense lawyer in Texas even tried to use rap music as an excuse for his client, saying the lyrics to Tupacalypse Now had caused him to act out violently, shooting and killing a police officer. The vice president of the United States at the time, Dan Quayle, singled out the album as presenting a dangerous message to America's youth and stating that it had, quote, no place in our society. Even Tupac's former neighborhood turned against him. 
They were angry that he had portrayed the neighborhood, the jungle, as a hopeless crime and drug-infested ghetto. He tried to give a free performance at the Marin City Festival and a fight broke out. A gun went off in the crowd, killing a six-year-old child. Tubac was now firmly branded by the public as a wild outlaw or thug. Instead of rejecting this label, he decided to embrace it, attempting to turn a negative term into a positive message. He began a movement and called it Thug Life. The acronym, according to Tupac, stood for The Hate You Give Little Infants Fucks Everyone. Or, to put it another way, whatever you put into the raising of children, whether it's love, education, and nurturance, or neglect, poverty, and violence, society will receive in kind. Tupac lent his voice, talent, and passion to this cause, hoping to make life better for others in the ghetto, especially children. He even had Thug Life tattooed on his stomach as a visible commitment to the cause. Tupac used his name and his voice to bring rival gang leaders together at an event in 1992 called the Truce Picnic. Two of the most notorious and far-reaching street gangs, the Bloods and the Crips, agreed to abide by a code of Thug Life. A list of 26 rules was written up. Some of the rules included no slinging, meaning drug dealing, to children, no slinging in schools, no slinging to pregnant women, no shooting at parties, and our old folks must not be abused. But the general public misunderstood or rejected the message. The term thug was popularly understood as meaning a hoodlum, and they felt the code, rather than curtail crime, just gave permission for it. They interpreted the code to not sell to children or pregnant women to mean it was okay to sell drugs to others. Or, the no-shooting-at-parties rule meant it was okay to shoot others outside of parties. The critics believed that thug life meant to live a life only meant for thugs. Those of us who have worked with people exhibiting high-risk behaviors such as drug abuse, unprotected sex, gang activities, etc., understand the concept of harm reduction. And this, I believe, is what Tupac was trying to begin with. The concept of harm reduction takes into account that realistically you cannot get a person or neighborhood to stop all risky or dangerous behaviors immediately. It's not a just-say-no approach, which often fails from the outset. Instead, it takes a tiered approach to changing behaviors. First, modifying the most risky behaviors immediately, and then working towards overall change that can be sustained. For example, trying to reduce the spread of AIDS among intravenous drug users, some community health care workers realized that they couldn't immediately stop addicts from shooting up drugs, but they could provide free, clean needles. Doing so did not mean they thought intravenous drug use was okay, but they had to start somewhere to save lives. So, not selling drugs to kids was a first step in children not becoming drug users, which would hopefully lead to less drug use in adults, etc. Perhaps Tupac was being too idealistic. Later in interviews, you hear a more jaded and cynical Tupac who felt betrayed by those he was trying to help. Instead of others embracing these positive steps, they were all too quick to attack and criticize, and it hurt him. He was raised with revolutionary ideals and belief in change and empowerment, and he thought he could make a difference. But instead of this, he was more often celebrated and revered for his bad boy image. Tupac's music was deemed threatening and unacceptable by the establishment. And ironically, the more his gangster image grew, the more he was respected by those on the fringes gangsters, drug dealers, and criminals. So, as he successfully did growing up, Tupac would now take on whatever role served him best. He began to act out and become more difficult with his entourage and co-stars. He started to respond with violence to perceived disrespect, 
and when he felt threatened in some way. When he was 20 years old, he starred in the film Poetic Justice with Janet Jackson. He played the lead role in Janet's love interest. Tupac was asked to take an AIDS test before he did a love scene with Janet. He was insulted and refused. He thought they got along fine, but some report Janet was cool towards him. He thought he'd made a friend, and the day after the movie wrapped, he called Janet, as he had been doing during the filming. Her number had been changed. He said he didn't care, but it's hard to believe he didn't feel hurt and betrayed. Tupac was angry on the set. He was smoking a lot of weed and starting fights. Maya Angelou, who was also in the movie, took him aside one day to calm him down when he was about to get into a fight with another man on the set. She told him how much he was needed as a talented young African-American man and asked him to please think about the choices he was making. Tupac began to cry, and she walked him to a private place where he could take a minute to collect himself. One of the reasons Tupac was so upset on the set of Poetic Justice is that it was being filmed in Oakland, California, and some people who knew him from the Bay Area came to watch the filming. Again, rather than being proud and supportive of their homeboy, they taunted him. Watching him being treated like a movie star on the set was too much for some of them who had known him as a poor street kid, and they hurled insults at him. Tupac tried to ignore it, but he was humiliated in front of the cast and crew. Even so, he gave a stellar performance, and he was praised by critics who called him immensely appealing and charismatic. He was also nominated for an NAACP Image Award for his performance in Poetic Justice. Right around this time, Tupac became aware of a young rapper known as Biggie Smalls. Christopher George Latour Wallace, a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, a.k.a. Notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Biggie, was born May 21, 1972, in the Bed-Stuy section of Brooklyn to Valletta Wallace, a single mom. Valletta had come to New York from Jamaica for better opportunities. She met and fell in love with a man named Selwyn George Latour. After she discovered she was pregnant, she was shocked to find out that George was married with a family in London. She had her son Christopher, and raising him and making a good life for the two of them became her purpose. She provided a clean and comfortable home, wonderful meals, and all the attention and support he could need. His upbringing was the complete opposite of Tupac's. She placed him in a private Catholic school where he would be safe and get a good education. When he was 10, he fell off a city bus and broke his leg badly. Voletta sued the city and was rewarded with a five-figure settlement. She put most of the money away for Christopher's college fund. Christopher was always a businessman, even as a child. He had the latest video games that all the neighborhood kids wanted to play. And he let them come over to play them, but charged each one a quarter for the privilege. Christopher was always headstrong and rebellious. He started running with neighborhood kids and chose to sell drugs beginning at the age of 12. He didn't need the money, but he was a big kid and he liked the feeling of power. And selling drugs added to his rep as a tough guy. He also decided that he wanted to attend the public high school. He was tired of the Catholic school rules and the uniforms. He transferred to Westinghouse High School, where some of his classmates included Trevor Busta Rhymes Smith and Sean Jay-Z Carter. He thought about becoming an artist, but the money from drug dealing was too lucrative, especially the crack trade, which was booming. He got arrested more than once, but by luck, never got charged. He became known as the best rapper in the neighborhood. He was quick, great with words, a true storyteller in rap form, and he had a unique voice. 
While most young men growing up in urban areas at the time dreamed of becoming rap stars, Christopher had something special and everyone knew it, even his mother, who would prefer he stayed in school and go to college. He was given a meeting with Sean Puffy Combs, who at the time was with Uptown Records. Puffy told him he'd work with him, but he'd have to stop selling drugs, stay off the streets and out of trouble. Christopher agreed, and all seemed to be going well. But there was internal problems in management at Uptown, and Puffy was fired. Biggie, as Christopher was now called, became depressed and started drinking and smoking weed every day. Puffy told him not to mess things up, that he was working on starting his own label and he'd be in touch. Biggie was taunted in the neighborhood as a failure before he had even begun. He moved to North Carolina to get away. Before too long, Puffy called him back. Bad Boy Records had been launched, and one of Puffy's first acts was to sign Biggie. It was Biggie's first single, titled Party and Bullshit, that Tupac had heard. While Biggie was on a promotional tour in Maryland, Tupac was in the audience and saw him perform. He came to meet Biggie. They instantly clicked. Biggie was a fan of Tupac's, and Tupac was impressed by young Biggie. They soon became friends, with Tupac serving as somewhat of a mentor to Biggie. Tupac introduced Biggie to his audiences, bringing him up on stage to perform with him. In October 1993, while in Atlanta, Tupac got in an argument in the street with two intoxicated white men. A fight broke out and shots were fired. One of the white men was hit. The two intoxicated men were off-duty police officers and it was determined that they were in possession of stolen guns. Tupac was charged with aggravated assault and made bail. Witnesses reported that the officers instigated the fight and drew their weapons first. Charges were dropped against Tupac and the officer was then charged with aggravated assault. Cops now labeled Tupac as a threat. He'd taken a shot at one of them, no matter that they were not in uniform and he couldn't have known that they were cops. And he got away with it. Jacques Agnant, a.k.a. Haitian Jack, was a New York-based music manager and an infamous thug. He was feared on the streets and liked to cozy up with rappers and other celebrities. He was seen with Madonna and started buddying up with Tupac. Tupac, some say, was drawn to Haitian Jack for two reasons. One, he reminded him of his mom's old boyfriend, Legs, who he'd seen as a father figure, and two, Haitian Jack could keep him safe on the streets. Tupac was increasingly surrounded by a rough element, drug dealers and gangsters. He seemed to revel in this lifestyle, once describing that he was, quote, hanging around these dudes, and I'm picking up their game. I was dressing like they were dressing. They took me shopping, and that's when I bought my first Rolex and my jewels. They made me mature. They introduced me to all these gangsters in Brooklyn. They were showing me all these guys who I needed to know to be safe in New York. Tupac was creating another identity, and this time it was with a very rough crowd. Maybe he thought if he was going to be labeled as a thug and a gangster, he might as well be one. Or maybe he did feel safer by surrounding himself with tough guys, pseudo-family or father figures. This is what many young boys who grow up in an unsafe neighborhood often do. Join a gang that will have their back, but not weighing what the ultimate cost might be until it's too late. Biggie warned Tupac to stay away from Haitian Jack Agnot, saying that he was a bad dude. In November 1993, less than a month after the Atlanta shooting incident, Tupac was at a club with Haitian Jack. There he met Ayana Jackson, a pretty 19-year-old. They had sex that night, and she came to meet him at his hotel room four days later. While she was in the room, two men entered. One of them was Jack. Ayana was sexually assaulted, and when she could get away, ran downstairs and called the police. 
all three men, including Tupac, were arrested. His old friend and mentor, Layla Steinberg, would later say, it was the company he kept that was Tupac's downfall. While awaiting trial, Tupac stayed away from Jack, angry that because of his actions, he was now facing a rape charge. He attended a party thrown by Puffy Combs. When he arrived, he saw his friend Biggie hanging out and partying with Jack and his crew. Tupac felt betrayed. Here was his friend who had warned him away from this guy. And now that he'd gone down for a crime he had committed, Biggie was drinking champagne with him. He couldn't believe it. Tupac felt he couldn't trust anyone. Around this time is when he began wearing a bulletproof vest. Tupac was now in a bad way. He walked around angry and depressed much of the time. There was fallout from his arrest, and he was dropped from the film Menace to Society. That March, Tupac ran into Albert and Alan Hughes, the directors of the film. Tupac punched Alan and was arrested and spent 10 days in jail. He was clearly out of control, and those who knew him as a socially conscious, soft-spoken young artist no longer recognized this angry, violent man. Tupac's saving grace at this time was a young woman named Keisha Morris. He met her at a dance in New York. She recognized him and asked him to dance. Later, before she left, she told him that he had supporters who believed in him and that she wished him well. They saw each other again a month later, and he invited her to his hotel. Tupac was used to women throwing themselves at him, and sex was easy to get from fans and groupies. But Keisha was different. She declined, telling him to call her another time. He began to call her, and they talked often, getting to know one another. She was a regular girl, a student pursuing a degree in criminal justice, and no groupie. He asked her out on a real date. He took her out for Italian food and to the movies to see Forrest Gump. They began dating and had frequent phone calls. He eventually moved into her place, and it became a sanctuary during the trial. Keisha took care of him, making sure he ate, cleaning up after him, and keeping the media at bay. Tupac relaxed and enjoyed living a normal life, probably for the first time since he lived with the Steinbergs as a teen. Meanwhile, the trial was not going well for Tupac. Although there was little evidence that Tupac was involved, somehow Jack Egnott was getting special consideration. His trial was separated from Tupac's and the other named defendant. Tupac had been charged with sexual abuse, sodomy, and the illegal possession of a firearm. He couldn't get anyone to hire him for acting work, and the lawyer's fees were draining his finances. He was asked to perform on an album that was being recorded by a little-known rapper named Lil Sean. While normally Tupac would not be interested, now he needed the cash, so he agreed even though he was wary as the music producer was a friend of Jack's. On November 30, 1994, Tupac arrived with his manager, Freddie Moore, Randy Stretch Walker, and his sister's boyfriend to the Quad Studios in Midtown Manhattan. In the lobby, three men in camouflage ran up with guns and began to grab their jewelry. When Tupac resisted, he was shot five times. Tupac's friends dragged him bleeding into the studio. Tupac recalls seeing Puffy, Biggie, and several other people standing there staring at him with no one moving to help. They dispute this, saying they ran to him and immediately called 911. Tupac was rushed into surgery. He had taken a low-caliber bullet to the head and was also shot in the hand and in the groin, not in the testicles, as some have reported. He spent several hours in surgery, mostly to stop the bleeding in the groin that had hit a major artery. The next day, his father, Billy Garland, arrived to see him in the hospital. Tupac had not seen the man since he was seven years old. At first, he thought he had died because he was looking into the face of a man that looked so much like him, he thought he must be seeing his ghost. 
While at the hospital, Tupac says he was receiving threatening phone calls. Against his doctor's advice, he checked himself out the next day. Tupac believed that the shooting had been a setup. He began to think a conspiracy had been at play. Tupac at first believed it was Haitian Jack who had set him up. He then expanded on this, saying that Ayana and Jack had set him up for the rape charge to take him down. Why else would Ayana lie to him? And also, why else was Jack's trial separated from his unless it was part of some scheme? But then he began to think that it was too much of a coincidence that Biggie and Puffy were at the studio that day. He thought they looked shocked to see him at all. Maybe, he thought, they knew he was supposed to be dead, not bleeding on the studio floor. Another odd thing that made Tupac believe in a conspiracy around the shooting was that the three officers that arrived first to the scene were the same three officers who had responded to Ayanna Jackson's call at the hotel and had just the previous day testified against Tupac at his trial. He was able to be in court the day after he left the hospital to hear the verdict at his trial. He was found not guilty of sodomy or rape, but guilty of sexual abuse, specifically for, quote, forcibly touching the victim's buttocks. He was sentenced to 18 months to four years in prison. The judge cited Tupac's troubles with the law since he became famous, but some believe what was really being judged was Tupac's gangster image. Haitian Jack was able to plead to sexual misconduct and was given probation. Tupac was sent to the maximum security Clinton Correctional Facility in February 1995. He served 11 months. While incarcerated, he married Keisha. His album, Me Against the World, was released during his incarceration. It debuted at number one on the Billboard charts and went on to become a multi-platinum selling album. Once released from prison, Tupac was ready to start a new chapter in his life. While in prison, he had been corresponding with the management of Death Row Records and Suge Knight. They had helped him to raise the bail money to spring him from prison. Tupac badly wanted to be released, as he had heard there was a contract to have him killed behind bars. He soon cut ties with Interscope to record for Death Row. Death Row Records was founded by Marion Suge Knight, Andre Dr. Dre Young, and a rapper named the DOC in 1991. Dr. Dre and the DOC wanted to leave both NWA and their label Ruthless Records, run by Eazy-E, another member of NWA. According to NWA's manager, Jerry Heller, Knight and his henchmen threatened Heller and Eazy-E with lead pipes and baseball bats to make them release Dre, the DOC, and Michelle from their contracts. Dr. Dre's first release for Death Row, The Chronic, sold over 3 million copies and put Death Row on the map. Death Row had also signed Snoop Doggy Dog, an ex-crack cocaine dealer from Long Beach, California. He had been a member of the Rolling Twenty Crips. His 1993 album, Doggy Style, became one of the top-selling rap albums ever. Tupac, now having completed his sentence in New York, was back on the West Coast. He met with Dr. Dre at Death Row, and Dre had him listen to some beats for a song he was working on titled California Love. Tupac came up with the rap lyrics on the spot. California Love kicked off Tupac's return to the West Coast rap game. Featuring Dr. Dre, it became a bestseller and was nominated at the Grammy Awards for the Best Rap Solo Performance, as well as the Best Rap Performance by a duo or group. At the 1995 Source Hip Hop Music Awards, Suge Knight took a swipe at Puffy Combs and Bad Boy Records. Never subtle, he taunted Puffy, who was often featured in his artist's videos. He said, Anyone who wants to be an artist and stay a star, and don't want to have to worry about the executive producer trying to be in all the videos, come to Death Row. 
The New York audience booed him. Snoop Dogg, angered by the booing, continued the fight by saying, The East Coast don't got no love for Snoop, Dr. Dre, and Death Row? Y'all don't love us? The media ran with the story, dubbing it The War Between East Coast and West Coast. A few weeks later, Suge Knight's friend Jake Robles was shot and killed in Atlanta. Witnesses pointed to a bodyguard of Puffy's, saying that he was involved. Suge blamed Puffy for his friend's death. Tupac was working hard to be back on top of the rap music industry. He also still held a major grudge against Biggie and wanted to get even. He was now a convicted sex offender and his marriage to Keisha had tanked, and she filed for an annulment. He put all his energy into his music. He was also paranoid, perhaps rightly so, not trusting anyone and constantly had a bodyguard at his side. He publicly accused Biggie of copying his style and said it was by riding his coattails that Biggie was where he was at, which wasn't really fair. Biggie was a talent in his own right, but Tupac felt he had helped him get started and then was betrayed. Suge pampered Tupac with gifts and trips, even buying him a Rolls Royce. He was even quoted saying, Tupac is death row, which angered the other talent. Suge positioned himself as Tupac's friend. What people didn't seem to understand was that friend to Tupac meant comrade. He had grown up with this concept, which meant that you would lay your freedom down and even your life on the line for a true friend. Tupac believed in this completely, and when others didn't live up to this ideal, he was hurt and angered and held a grudge forever. His first album for Death Row, All Eyes on Me, was released February 13, 1996. Over 500,000 copies were sold in the first week alone. Frank Alexander worked for Death Row Records as security. While on a video shoot in Times Square, Snoop Dogg's trailer was shot at. He was not there that day, but the crew was present. Frank ran towards the shots and the trailer and made sure everyone was safe, pulling them out one by one and escorting them to waiting vehicles to move them somewhere secure. Tupac heard about the incident and requested Frank Alexander to be his full-time bodyguard. Tupac also began dating Quincy Jones's daughter, Kidada, who he at first confused with his other daughter, Rashida, who has now become an actress starring in the shows The Office, Parks and Recreation, and now Angie Tribeca. Rashida had taken offense to a comment Tupac had made about how her father only dated white women. She had responded in the media with her own criticisms of Tupac's criminal history and reputation. Tupac saw Kidada at a party, and thinking that she was Rashida, went up to her, being his most charming self, to clear the air. Kidada was taken with Tupac's charm, and they began dating. He eventually won over her family, including Rashida, Quincy, and his wife Peggy Lipton, who thought he was charming. Tupac was still searching for acting work, and he was given a part in the film Gridlocked alongside Tim Roth. Tupac's goals for his life were now to do more films, marry Kidada, and move out of L.A. to raise a family. But still holding a grudge and wanting revenge, his next album, Hit Em Up, directly addressed his enemies. He threatened Biggie, Puffy, and Bad Boy Records. Professor Michael Eric Dyson wrote about the album, quote, Tupac released the most bitter, vindictive, vengeful battle rap and diss song of all time, which was called Hit Em Up, where he begins to literally talk about having sex with Biggie's wife. It was vicious and it was powerful and compelling at the same time. With the song, Tupac basically declared war on East Coast rappers. Frank Alexander wanted to up the security around Tupac, knowing that there would be fallout. The other security personnel didn't want to be responsible and Frank alone was tasked with watching out for Tupac's safety. On September 7, 1996, Tupac, Suge Knight, and the Death Row Posse were in Las Vegas. 
They were there to take in a Mike Tyson fight at the MGM Grand Hotel. Afterwards, there was to be a party held at Suge's 662 Club. Suge decided for this party that no weapons, including those of the security detail, would be allowed in the club. Weapons were to be left in their vehicles. Tupac was staying at the Luxor Hotel. Frank and Tupac went to the MGM Grand to meet up with Suge and see the boxing match. Typical of Mike Tyson's matches, this one was short. Tyson scored a knockout at 1 minute 49 seconds in the first round, and the fight was over. On their way out, walking through the MGM casino, one of Suge's posse came up and whispered in Tupac's ear. Tupac went running off, Frank in hot pursuit behind him. As Frank turned a corner, he saw Tupac start throwing punches at a guy with others from the death row crew joining in and throwing punches and kicking the man on the ground. The man getting beat down was Orlando Anderson a member of the Crips who had allegedly been involved in the assault of a death row associate. His chain and medallion, emblazed with the death row logo, had been stolen. Frank grabbed Tupac to remove him from the melee at the same time the hotel security was breaking up the fight. Tupac then made a stop at the Luxor to change, and then a brief stop at Suge's mansion before departing for the 662 Club. Upon leaving Suge's house, Tupac headed with Suge towards the BMW and told Frank to take the little homies in a separate car. He gave him the keys to Kidada's car, who he was planning to meet up with at the club. Suge, driving the BMW with Tupac in the passenger seat, took off towards the club with Frank falling behind in the second car. They headed down Las Vegas Boulevard, known as The Strip, the main thoroughfare in downtown Las Vegas. As most nights, The Strip was crowded with cars bumper to bumper. The BMW had just stopped for a light, when a white Cadillac pulled up alongside the BMW and an arm shot out of the window. Before anyone had time to react, the shooting started. The shooter was firing directly into Suge's car on the passenger side. Frank in the car behind them jumped out to run towards the BMW when Suge, perhaps panicking or as an automatic reaction, made a U-turn and started driving off in the opposite direction. Frank ran back to his car to follow him, but the bullets had also punctured Suge's tires and he didn't get far before the car stopped. Suge fell out onto the street. Blood was gushing from his head. He had been grazed by a bullet and would survive. Police and paramedics had arrived, and they were trying to get to Tupac in the passenger seat. The door was stuck, and they had to pry it loose. Tupac was gently removed and laid on the ground. Frank leaned over him. I can't breathe. I can't breathe, Tupac repeated. When news got out that Tupac had been shot and was in the ICU, everyone believed he would pull through. He's been shot five times and survived. He'll survive this time, was a comment most often heard. But Tupac had no discernible blood pressure when he arrived at the hospital and had been given two blood transfusions. He lost an enormous amount of blood. He had been hit four times, twice in the chest, once in the arm, and once in the thigh. He was placed on life support and put under a barbiturate-induced coma. It was reported that he had continued to try and get out of bed. Tupac Shakur was a fighter to the end, holding on to life for almost a week. He died from internal bleeding on Friday, September 13, 1996. He was 25 years old. So, who shot Tupac? There are many, many theories around his murder and a number of books 
websites, and documentaries have been created to solve this mystery, as no one has ever been held criminally responsible for his death. Of course, Biggie was always considered a suspect due to his ongoing feud with Tupac and the bad blood between them. But besides convoluted conspiracy theories, there was no evidence that Biggie had been involved. And what about Haitian Jack and the other gangsters who he'd been tight with and then dissed after he was convicted of the sexual assault? There is no allegations that he had any other further dealings with them at all or been approached or threatened by anyone after his release from prison. Some even point to Suge Knight, which would be really odd since Suge was sitting just a couple of feet away from Tupac and bullets were flying everywhere. It's near impossible for someone to shoot as many bullets into such a confined space and not think they would hit Suge as well. No, what makes the most sense and what most believe now to be the case is something very simple. Orlando Anderson, a member of the Crips, a hated enemy of Suge Knight's crew who are made of Blood's gang members, had just been humiliated by a beatdown by Tupac and Suge's crew. Some say that it was a professional hit, but it seemed like a typical drive-by that happens every day in the hood. As to how the shooter would know how to get to Tupac, well, they were stuck on the strip and Tupac was making a spectacle of himself on the slow drive down the long street. He had been calling out to women in nearby cars, inviting them to party with him at the club, and once standing up with his head above the sunroof to address people nearby. It wouldn't have been hard if they were looking for him for someone to find Tupac that night. Many believe that it was Orlando Anderson who was the shooter or that someone with him was responsible for the shooting. But the code of the streets would prevent anyone from snitching. They wouldn't go to the police, but would most likely plan and carry out the payback themselves. And there was an immediate backlash after Tupac's murder, with many killings of Crips versus Bloods in Southern California. Two years later, Anderson himself would also be killed in a gang shootout in South Central Los Angeles. Would anyone ever be charged for the murder of Tupac? No, but you can be sure someone knows what happened and most likely, street justice was carried out a long time ago. Biggie Small's first album, Ready to Die, released in 1994, had gone platinum four times with the single Big Papa reaching number one on the U.S. rap charts. He soon began working on his second album titled Life After Death. It was set to release on March 25, 1997. On March 7, he was in Los Angeles to be a presenter at the Soul Train Music Awards. The following evening, he attended a party at the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles. After midnight, he was leaving the party in a GMC Suburban SUV. His bodyguard was at the wheel with Biggie in the passenger seat, and his friend James Little Cease Lloyd was sitting behind him. They were stopped at a red light just a couple of blocks from the museum when a black Chevy Impala SS pulled up on the right. Cease looked over into the car and saw the driver had a gun, but had no time to call out before shots were fired. Biggie was the only one injured, and he was hurt badly, having been hit four times. They rushed him to Cedar sinai Hospital, but it was too late. Christopher Notorious B.I.G. Wallace was pronounced dead on March 9, 1997, at 1.15 a.m., almost exactly six months after Tupac's murder. He was 24 years old.
As almost clear-cut as Tupac's murder probably is, Biggie's death is layers more complicated. Little Cease got a good look at the shooter, and this time police had someone who was willing to identify the killer. A composite drawing was made from his description. He described the shooter as a black man dressed in a blue suit and a bow tie, which he took to be the uniform of a member of the Fruit of Islam, the security wing of Louis Farrakhan's Nation of Islam sect. It was very common for rappers to use Fruit of Islam members as part of the security team. So one theory was that the shooter was working for the Crips and was hired to take out Biggie. The reason, it was speculated, was that money was owed to the Crips by either Biggie or Bad Boy Records that was never paid. This has been the buzz on the street ever since Biggie's murder, and most believe it is a plausible explanation. But it gets complicated because there are various theories about why the money was owed. One explanation was that the money was supposed to be paid to protect Biggie from the Bloods and or the death row posse. The retaliation for Tupac's murder was still resulting in gang wars, so it was an ongoing concern. The amount was rumored to be over $100,000 or more that was owed and Bad Boy reneged. Another theory is that the money was owed because Bad Boy ordered the hit on Tupac and the balance of the debt was never paid. But still another explanation was offered. Suge hated Biggie and may have ordered the hit. He still blamed Puffy and by extension Biggie for the death of his friend Jake Robles. Or he might have believed that Biggie's people had something to do with Tupac's death. So you either believe that it was the Crips that Biggie had originally hired for protection that were responsible for his death, or the Bloods, and by extension Suge Knight and Death Row, that ordered the hit. And the hitman was either a hired gun from the Fruit of Islam, or just someone who dressed as if he were to throw police off the scent. And I could draw even more theories that are even more complicated with even more characters involved including the LAPD, rogue cops, and even the FBI. But I will simply direct you towards some very detailed and thorough resources on the show page for your late-night reading and watching pleasure. I've listed several at truecrimepodcast.com. For now, I will simply tell you about the aftermath of the deaths of these two talented young men. Tupac Amaru Shakur was cremated and his ashes were scattered on the beach in Malibu, California, in Afeni's hometown of Lumberton, North Carolina, and in the sea in Soweto, South Africa. His album, The Don Kiluminati, The Seven Day Theory, was released posthumously two months after his death. Since then, no less than 20 albums of original unreleased material and compilation albums have been released. Afeni founded the Tupac Amaru Shakur Foundation whose mission is to provide training and support for students who aspire towards the creative arts. The Tupac Amaru Center for the Arts was opened in Stone Mountain, Georgia in 2005. A documentary about his life titled Tupac Resurrection was released as a feature film and nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary in 2005. Afeni Shakur has managed her son's estate, giving much of the proceeds to charitable causes. She launched a clothing line called Machiavelli Branded, with all proceeds going to his foundation. Forbes magazine stated that in 2008 alone, his estate made $15 million. Afeni Shakur died on May 2, 2016, after suffering a heart attack at her home in Sausalito, California. Christopher Wallace's wake was attended by rap royalty, including Puff Daddy, Jay-Z, Busta Rhymes, Mary J. Blige, and Russell Simmons. Al Sharpton was also in attendance, and his mother, Valletta, presided over the ceremonies. 
Biggie was displayed in a casket that was reported to cost $20,000. Little Kim, Biggie's mistress, also attended, but kept a respectful distance away from his wife, Faith Evans. The funeral procession moved from Manhattan into Brooklyn, where huge crowds, up to 50,000 people, gathered to pay their respects as they drove by. The procession then continued to his final resting place, a cemetery in Queens. Sixteen days after his death, his album, airily titled Life After Death, was released. It quickly hit number one on the Billboard charts. The Christopher Wallace Foundation raises funds for children's school equipment and supplies in his honor. A biographical film about Biggie called Notorious was released in 2009. His son, Christopher Wallace Jr., played him as a child, and his mother was played by Angela Bassett. Valletta Wallace has been dedicated to finding out what happened to her son and has appeared and been interviewed on numerous media outlets. To this day, his murder has never been solved. Valletta filed a wrongful death suit against the city of Los Angeles. The suit originally charged that an LAPD officer, David Mack, who reportedly worked security detail for Death Row, had arranged for her son's murder on the instructions of Suge Knight, and that the LAPD was behind the cover-up of whoever killed him. In 2005, a mistrial was declared. The judge later dismissed the lawsuit in 2010. Valletta recently attended the memorial service for Tupac's mother, Afeni. Christopher Wallace leaves behind a widow and two children. Suge Knight has had numerous troubles over the years, including health concerns, legal, and financial problems. He has also been shot multiple times, once in 2005 when he was shot in the leg, and again in 2014 when he was shot six times while attending an awards ceremony party in L.A. He filed for bankruptcy in 2006 and sold death row records and other property to pay off debts in 2008. He served a prison sentence for probation violations from 1996 to 2001. In 2015, he was charged with a hit-and-run. It is said he deliberately ran over the victims, killing one in the process. His bail was set at $25 million and since reduced to $10 million. He is still in jail awaiting trial for murder and attempted murder. Thanks for listening to this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. To connect with the show, you can find me on Twitter at Upon a Crime and on Facebook and Instagram at Once Upon a Crime Pod. Our show page is truecrimepodcast.com, and you can now call the show at 408 909 TRUE. That's 408 909 8783. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>